today I have a guest that I'm so I'm just so looking forward to this conversation because uh, on one hand, it's, you know, we're friends from before, but another hand is I really enjoyed this book. We're talking about a memoir by my dear friend, Heather Diamond, who just wrote a book called Rabbit in the Moon. And we're going to be just unpacking all the things that uh, she is, has crafted in this book about intercultural marriage, uh, family things, marrying a Chinese guy from Hong Kong. Uh, yeah, we'll get into that. But right now, let me just introduce her properly. Heather Diamond is an American writer in Hong Kong. She's living in Hong Kong right now. It sounds so weird. Uh, she is a PhD in American studies from here, UH, and has worked as a bookseller, university lecturer, and a museum curator, amongst other things. She is the author of American Aloha, Cultural Tourism and the Negotiation of Tradition. So as I had mentioned, I had met Heather here in Hawaii uh, when she and Fred, her husband, uh, were living here and now living in Hong Kong, where I claim as my hometown. So Heather, welcome to KTUH. Ah, I'm glad to be here. I wish I could be in Hawaii, but this is close enough. Yes, but you know, you're doing that cultural thing, <laughs> which inspired this, the writing of this book. And I, I really know, so I have to say, it is, you're a funny lady, <laughs> just reading the book and just enjoying your language in, in talking about your paths and journeys and disruptions and things that weren't meant to be or things that kind of evoked a whole different path in your life and uh let, let's just break it down let's start with hawaii or shall we not do you want to start with anything in particular no hawaii is a good place to start okay. that's where my story starts that's right your story starts in hawaii um mm -hmm. and you were an east west center scholar Correct. I, I had an East West Center uh, fellowship to do my PhD, so I had four years at in Holly Manoa at um, at the East West Center while I was doing my degree at UH. Yeah. Right. So, folks listening, if you are part of the East West Center or you have uh, you know setups and situations here that involve intercultural exchanges, just be careful. You might end up marrying somebody from the place. And it happens, right? There are lots of well, there's, there's the whole mythology about the East-West Center relationships because it throws together people from all over the place in very concentrated environments. So I know a lot of couples that started at the East-West Center and yeah. now have gone back to their home countries and living other places, but a lot of cross-cultural stories started there. Okay, but am I going to get myself into trouble by asking whether the East-West, you know, the, the kind of fascination with the East and that cultural um, exoticism of I, the ideas of wanting to embrace another culture comes into play? I think the East-West Center, at least the, the, the student program, draws a certain kind of person in the first place. I mean, they, they bring in a lot of people from around the Asia Pacific, the you know, Pacific Rim, as well as the Pacific Basin. And in terms of Americans coming there, I think most of the people that end up at the East-West Center are people that have some kind of, not just fascination with Asia, but you know, not just itchy feet, they actually have a deep curiosity about the world. And so a number of the people have come from the Peace Corps, or they've come from, um, there are a lot of West Pointers that come there to learn languages and immerse themselves in language. So I think it's not just people that are, um, you know, have sort of an Orientalist fantasy about the rest of the 
you know, the other side. It's more people that have a, a deep curiosity and a, a willingness to learn about other cultures. That, mm -hmm. So they're, they're already in programs like, um, you know, some kind of international studies. Right. I, mean, I was in American studies, which sounds weird, but I came to American studies at the University of Hawaii because it has a very transnational focus. And that's what I wanted to do. So you've always been interested in the East and the cultures and the histories. No, that's not entirely true, but I was teaching in Houston at a community college where I had students from around the world. I had a lot of Vietnamese students and I had also been able to travel to Vietnam with a colleague. Um, and I was teaching multicultural literature from around the world. So my curiosity came from my reading and from my students. And I came to Hawaii first for an East West Center uh, summer program on China so that I could learn more so that I could teach better. And that was where I met Fred. Okay. So Fred is an ethnomusicology professor who was, I think he's still affiliated with UH, right? Even though he's at in Hong Kong at the Chinese University. He's an emeritus now. Okay, okay. So he was working there and you met Fred through while you were at UH. Um, just to dig a little bit into your past is, did you ever date Asian men before Fred? Oh, you do ask hard questions. <laughs> oh, actually, he's the first non-white man I ever dated. So, and I, I actually met him in a summer program. So he was teaching in California. I was teaching in Texas. And we met during a summer program and then went back to our respective teaching jobs and states after that. Um, yeah, he was, he was my first, first and only. Right. Isn't that funny how things happen? So at that time, you were married or divorced already? Because can you just give us a little kind of recap and not to pry too detailed into your private life, but just to give us a context to where you were at the time when you met Fred? Fred and I were both married to other people at the time that we met. So it was totally unexpected. It was one of those um, kinds of comets that hits you in the middle of your life, I guess. Totally unexpected. And uh, we really didn't know what to do with our attraction. And we went back to our respective states thinking maybe, well, I, I went back thinking I could forget about it. Uh, he persisted. So we ended up both getting divorces. We went through a really painful period of time where we were enraptured with each other and in deep pain in terms of getting out of our respective relationships where neither of us had realized we were as unhappy as we were. So we, we both had to go through divorces. And then we still didn't know how we were gonna end up together because we taught on opposite sides of the country. So we just sort of waited, wondering what was gonna happen and had a long distance relationship for a year. Then I got into graduate school in Hawaii and then he got a teaching job in Hawaii and none of those were things that we had foreseen. Okay, so those are things where you don't control them but some magical external forces bring you back together and help. I you. think of it more like a snowball going downhill and just picking up stuff along the way. <laughs> yeah, I really feel like we were fated to meet and we, you know, things fell into place once we took, took those first steps um, but, but at we that point, had a difficult transition. Right. But when you were still, you know, before that all kind of came to play is, did you think it originally that it was just some kind of a fling and you didn't want to see the potential because it's just too complicated 
you know, is that where you were going with this to begin with? Absolutely. Yeah. That's where I was going with it anyway. You'd have to ask him for his take on the other okay. side. But another time. Was, I definitely thought I had a house. I had a, I had a faculty position. I had friends. I'd been in Houston for 25 years. I had cats. I didn't want to disrupt all of that. Even when I went to graduate school, I intended to go back to Texas and keep teaching. I didn't want to give up my job. Right. Um, and then moved to Hawaii and messed all that up. So right. the, the, and everything that's happened since was, was um, a surprise. Yes. And that's why life is so interesting. But did you ever see yourself as, you know, as, as much as you had your life and you had your husband to go back to, whatever that meant, um, you were his other woman, technically, because he was still also married. Did that, did that strike you as anything, as, as, as a, you know, a, a woman in your 40s? Uh, at the time when you were a mother and correct me if I'm wrong you said you were already a grandmother when you met him yes I was (laughs) yeah all right so uh, midlife crisis I don't know um middle age sorry I'm saying middle age but uh, a mother and grandmother who's like thinking of fling while you're doing your university studies and then meeting somebody and becoming somebody's mistress if you will I mean that's just so outrageous it's just so unassuming of you when I read it I'm like oh my gosh you're you're his mistress so to speak I didn't use that word at the time but yeah um I think it conjured up all kinds of stuff you know I I think I both of us jumped into therapy in, in our respective locations and trying to sort it out and I felt deep shame at some level. And I thought, what kind of a feminist am I when I'm undermining somebody, some other woman's relationship? You know, there were all in your own body. That's your feminism. Yeah, And also being one of my therapists said, maybe you're just afraid to be happy. And I thought, okay, that's an interesting take on that. I also was afraid of making a fool of myself there were just all sorts of things that came up you know and also there's a part of you that feels kind of wild and free and um liberated from you know the conventions that you've set around you yes but yeah it was it was frightening and exhilarating and caused a lot of of self-reckoning I think because I really couldn't put all of those things together at the time right and and by creating this through your memoir and reconstructing and making sense of how you journeyed in that process of your relationships. And um, that must have been an interesting process. Can you share a little bit about that? The memoir writing is, I think of it as self-archaeology that you have to dig through a lot of dirt to find the treasure. You have to keep going down. And so I think I think many memoirists would agree with me on this, that we tend to write out our experience and then ask ourselves, is that true? And you keep falling down through levels and and questioning yourself. If I really got into the bottom of this, am I really being honest about what I was feeling, what I was doing about the kind of soul searching that this required? It's hard to go back to a place where you were experiencing so much turmoil and pain and you're always an objective bystander in your own life at that point, but it also conjures up a lot of those feelings. <coughs> um, I also remember my therapist saying, you can revisit the painful places in your life, but you can't live there. 
So when you're writing memoir, you want to try and write it as if you're living there, but you also need to protect yourself in a way that that maintains some sanity and some, you know, a, a stepping stones to get back out of those deep places. Yeah. So I think that was one of the, the areas of my memoir where I really had to get authentic with myself and really think about what, what we were feeling at the time and what I was doing in terms of trying to make sense out of something that I had said I would never do. So in your process of writing, you were almost rediscovering yourself in a sense, no? Yes, I think that's absolutely true. Yeah, you have to get back into those spaces and really be willing to sit with some uncomfortable things, uncomfortable truths. Do you want to share one of your uncomfortable truths that you're grappling with that maybe we can unpack in your memoir? I think, I think that was one of the parts of, of working with my my feelings around having an affair and going back and lying about it. I'm not a liar. I write memoir because I'm a compulsive truth teller. And yet I had to do a lot of lying in order to save us enough space that I could process what I was going through. And another uh, section was, I, I wrote a chapter about uh, reverse cultural shock with my mother, um, traveling with her after I'd spent a lot of time with my Chinese family. And when I first wrote it, I sounded like a whiny 18 year old. And I really hated the voice that came out, but that's exactly how I was acting at the time because I'd been gone since I was 18. And I had to rewrite that chapter. I think I rewrote it about 10 times wow. before I really could get down and look at where did those feelings come from? What had I done to alienate myself from my family? Why was I judging her and how did that reflect on me to kind of shift the lens back to myself rather than blaming her for our, our distances. Mm. So, yeah, those are, those are the kinds of processes I think that go through when, when you're writing memoir. And are you sharing as you write and rewrite or are you doing this internal dialogue and trying to work it out yourself? Sometimes I'm writing on the side. Sometimes I'm doing free writing on the side. So when I come back to it and I read it and I think, oh, that doesn't sound authentic or it doesn't sound, it sounds like I'm posing or that I'm, I'm keeping some, something from my readers, keeping something from myself as well. So I do a lot of free writing on the side to, to really kind of dig down and say, okay, what was really happening then? Then I go back into the draft and try and, and um, reflect those deeper things. Wow, it just sounds like so much therapy in working. Cheaper than therapy, but it's just as painful. <laughs> and nobody's there to hold your hand. Yeah, I mean, that's just, I, I can't even imagine the process. Um, so before we get into, you know, I'd love to dive into, you know, you, your um, experience because a big part of your book is, you know, marrying Fred and moving to Hong Kong and, and then having to ha develop a friendship and relationship with an entirely foreign family, you know, and you're living there. And then we have to, to, to tell people who don't understand Hong Kong is you weren't just living in Hong Kong, you're living in a small village on a different island away. And people just don't know what that means. Right. And I guess exactly. is maybe no, it's like, you know, not living on, um, on Oahu. It's yeah. 
something equivalent? Yeah, it's very much like that. If you live in Hilo as opposed to Honolulu, you have an entirely different experience than, than what most people think of. And even Honolulu isn't Waikiki, so it's not what visitors see or expect. It's something entirely different. My experience there, I discovered even in the process of the year that we lived there, um, which was 2007 to 2008, before coming here this time, um, that a lot of local, local Chinese and also expats never see the world that I was living in. Absolutely. That's why your perspective in this becomes so interesting. And for me to having, you know, lived in Hong Kong for so long, I, I see these things when you describe them and I know exactly what you're talking about, which made it even more um, engaging for me. But I think for outsiders too, is the way you describe things. Maybe let's take a quick break. When we come back, I'd love to hear um, some of your your readings and, and your descriptive um, images of, of the colors of Hong Kong and just you as an expat woman, you know, an American lady who marries into this family and it's like, whoa, what is this new life of mine? And so don't go away. If you're just tuning in, I'm talking to Heather Diamond, the author of a new memoir called Rabbit in the Moon. Welcome back. I am talking to Heather Diamond here with her new memoir, Rabbit in the Moon. So Heather, having lived in Hawaii for quite a few years and uh, growing up in Texas, you were working in Texas, but tell me a little bit about your background so we can go back to before we go to Hong Kong. Actually, I grew up in Washington State in a, um, I guess it's a small town compared to Chinese standards, 60,000 people north of Seattle. So I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, but when I was 18, I married a bass player and jumped on a bus and went to Arkansas. And I lived there for four years. And then from there, I went to Texas where I was for 25 years in Houston. And then I was in Hawaii for 20 years before coming okay. here. Wow. All right. Where, where yeah, is it? Figure out my age from that. <laughs> yeah. Well, you can share that because that's part of the richness of your story is talking about how, you know, even in your, um, in the press release, it, it, you know, it talks about your challenges and multiple midlife reinventions, you know, as a mother and grandmother. So who are you kidding? You know, no secret. Point. <laughs> uh, but so, you know, we're dealing with multicultural, um, living experiences but before that you know you as a mother and and hopping like you said on a bus with a musician and i believe you said your mother uh, is she's from russia she lived in russia or my my grandmother my grandmother, grandparents right. were my, my grandfather was jewish from ukraine and my grandmother was russian from near moscow right. on my paternal side on the other side norwegian so we're bringing a lot of different cultures and identities into this mix, mm -hmm. right? Which is really mm -hmm. fascinating because it's just not, you're not just a white woman going into Asian territory. There's a lot of, not necessarily baggage, but there's a lot of complexities in who you are before you entered this Asian space, right? I think a lot of Americans don't really think about that because they're so used to living in the present tense and they often don't know those stories about their ancestors. Right. But doing this kind of a cross-cultural can I call it an experiment after 23 years? Um, and doing, entering into a cross-cultural relationship and moving to a foreign country really made me stop and think about what my grandmother, my grandparents went through on, on, on both sides actually, but I know more about the Russian side. So I actually get into that in the third part of the book where, where I travel to Harbin, China where my Russian grandparents went when they left Vladivostok on their way to America 
But back then you left home and you never saw your parents again. You never went home and you only communicated by letters. You didn't have Zoom or Skype to communicate. So it was a much more radical departure um, to, you know, fall in love with somebody from elsewhere and leave. Plus my grandmother was shunned for marrying a Jew. So my, you know, that really put my mixed marriage into perspective that here I was welcomed and Fred was welcomed by both my, both of our families, even when they didn't really understand what the other person was about and had their own stereotypes. But for my grandmother, the cost was much higher in terms of, of being disconnected from her brothers and never seeing her mother again. And, and you know, all of the, the repercussions of moving to America in a place where they tried to hide the fact that my father had Jewish heritage because of the discrimination. So a very different kind of situation. Yeah, yeah, no, that's fascinating. And and again, you know, these histories and memories and then again of you digging into that past and how that affects how you see, um, like you said, your relationship with Fred. Um, it, it just brings a, a, a more interesting take on this because it's, it's just too easy to say you're going and entering this um, Chinese family as an American. But having said that, you know, let's talk, let's dig a little bit about your relationship and moving to Hong Kong. So you had one very interesting year when you lived with Fred in 2007 before you moved back to Hawaii. Is that right? Mm-hmm. And that's when we, you lived in that little village in Changzhou. Give us a little sense of what that meant or your first initial challenges in living a place like that? Well, first of all, we, yeah, we were living, he he had a a visiting professorship at Hong Kong University, but we were living in a flat belonging to his aunt right above, one stairway above his parents' communal household. And his family is not, I found out, not typical. They, They have a very old fashioned family where three brothers share the house and three brothers and their wives share one household. And before that, when Fred was growing up, they had five generations in one household. So he refers to his cousins as his brothers and sisters because they're all the same generation and they all grew up together. And I thought, oh, this is what all Chinese households are like. But then I would talk to other people who would say, oh, they're, they're so traditional and, and they're kind of the ideal rather than the reality because many people have become much more westernized and the families no longer live together like that. So we were there very close to the family, which was wonderful for observing all of the rituals that they still practice. But on the other hand, it meant that we were expected to eat lunch and dinner with them every day, which I hadn't planned on. And Fred had agreed to without talking to me as a compromise for not actually staying in their house the whole time, which is what they had assumed we would do. So there were a lot of challenges to my American sense of independence right. and a lot of expectations I'd had about hanging out in the city and having fancy international dinners with wine. And instead I was having being told every day that my headaches were because I didn't eat enough rice and people <laughs> were admiring my chopstick skills and, <laughs> and talking around me and I couldn't understand the language. So it was very different than what I'd expected. Right, right. And, and you had no outlet because you were, you were there by yourself in this family, right? You didn't have friends. To no, I actually only made two friends while I was there because I was pretty isolated. It was a long ways, you know, it's a ferry ride into the city. Right. Um, so I was out on the island most of the time. Yeah. 
Um, do you have, you know, before, do you have a, I'd like to hear you sharing your readings, but when I was reading the book, I had selected something that I thought just popped out in my head in the way you described your impressions of Chinese food. Can I just share that one first? Sure. I just thought it was so great. Now this is and I this is rude of me to preempt the author and 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 speak on behalf of her writing, but this is just shows how gripping um, your words are. So I'm just going to describe how you described the chicken. <laughs> I've never seen a naked boiled chicken head, and I do not understand how anyone could think it attractive as a culinary garnish. Yet there it sits, propped up in the middle of its own chopped, steamed, and sauced flesh one eye closed and it's comb flopping left. Fred turns to me with an exaggerated wink, his fingers crooked over his head like the chicken's comb. Stifling a giggle, I nearly choke on my tea. Mimi sees me and says, she heard that if you go out with your boss and the chicken head points to you, you'll know that you're about to be fired. <laughs> it's just so vivid. Yeah, I, you know, I always worry that other people think that I'm being overly squeamish about these things, but it's not something you see in an American restaurant. And like for me growing up in Hong Kong or, or just in the Asian culture as you do, everybody has that, you go to a banquet and every table has the duck or the chicken head facing on top of all the cut meat and it's like the norm. And so it's interesting that cultural perspective. I still have trouble with the, you know, when you go to a banquet and they bring out the procession of, of <laughs> suckling pigs yes. that have electric light bulbs <laughs> in their eye sockets and they're blinking yeah. red. Yeah. Yeah. That kind of, you know, I was a vegetarian when I first went there. So that needs to be put in context too. So um, I'm a vegetarian because I am hypersensitive to the suffering of animals. I'm not now, I'm still hypersensitive. I've just learned to insulate myself because I can't be in Chinese culture and be like that. So yeah, you can't be a vegetarian in Chinese culture. It's painful. It must be. It's pretty hard. Um, the first time I went out with my, well, we had a New Year's dinner and I, they had ordered special soup for me because I was vegetarian and it was decorated with a chicken foot. <laughs> Fred quickly plucked out of my bowl and, and people kept saying, oh, it just has a little pork in it for flavor. So... <laughs> Yeah, I gave up. I was way too much trouble and I was trying so hard to fit in that I decided it really wasn't worth it. So you tried hard to fit in. What does that mean? Like, you know, how do you express, what does it mean to fit in and, and in your phase in life? Like, you know, you're not an 18 year old girl who's going to like follow the mother-in-law and listen to her and follow, you know, go in the kitchen with her when she cooks, right? You know, you have your own life. I didn't while I was there. I spent a lot of time smiling and um, not always sincerely, uh, pretending that I was understanding things. I mean, even now, you know, if I, now I know to take a book along. If everybody's really talking in Cantonese and I don't understand, I start reading. But then invariably, my mother-in-law will say, she'll ruin her eyes. She already has her degree. Why is she still reading? <laughs> so Chinese. <laughs> I have to worry with those sort of things too. Um, but I, you know, I, I can kind of go off in my head and, and you know, do whatever I'm doing and sometimes I forget to answer when people speak to me in English because I've disconnected myself so I mean I've learned to really watch and pay attention even if I don't understand I'm trained as a as an anthropologist a folklorist and so that training makes me interested in body language and 
context. In fact, sometimes I actually think I'm seeing things that Fred misses because he's so involved in the conversation that he's, he's talking all the time, but I'm sitting back, I'm wallpaper. And so I'm taking notes in my mind about how people are looking, what they're doing. And so I see a lot of the, the activity and the body language that people that are in the conversation miss. And I think that's, that actually helped me with my writing as well, because I'm constantly pointing things out to him that he didn't see because he's always in the center of the, the activity. Mm. So share some of something that you would like to bring from your reading. Um, okay, I'm gonna read just a little piece from my very first visit to Hong Kong. Um, Fred and I went there uh, on a trip and the preface to this is I had planned a little two day vacation to escape from the family and the entire family went with us. So we ended up That's with 16 funny. people on our little private trip. This happened multiple times, but that was the first time it happened. So this is us with the family in Macau. 15 strong were an unwieldy millipede walking together through the old sections of the city, but I'm still charmed by the lovely black and white mosaic pavement covering the main plaza, the yellow and pink colonial buildings with their white piping. It's amazing that we've reached the main plaza at all given that at nearly every corner along the way, there've been raucous disagreements with lots of pointing in different directions. I pull Fred aside to ask, why does your family have to fight about everything? They can't even get down the street without yelling at each other. What do you mean fighting, he says, leaning back in astonishment. We're not fighting, just having a discussion. And if I don't go back and participate, they'll think I don't care. He dives back into the flurry as I watch from the sidelines, puzzling over how intense non-smiling faces Arm waving and raised voices can be friendly discussion rather than signals of anger. In my family, yelling at each other resulted in our mouths being washed out with soap or in spankings with a wooden spoon, mostly me because I yelled the loudest. Once on vacation, when the bickering in the back seat got to be too much, my mother told my brother and sister and me to get out and walk home from the Dakota Badlands. As adults, we resort to indirection and sarcasm when dissension rises between us. I admire honesty and directness, but I'm programmed to be diplomatic and polite. Once when I chided Fred for not thanking me for something, he told me it's rude to say thank you all the time in a Cantonese family, that thank you is for strangers. In a family, he said, you're expected to say what you mean and take care of each other, so there's no need to be polite. At the time, I'd reminded him we were in my country where American customs prevailed. So there's so much there that, so if people are just listening, this is just an excerpt, um, Heather Diamond being the author of this new memoir, Rabbit in the Moon. And just that little bit, you know, I imagine that scene in the bus because I, I know how loud and raucous Chinese people are, especially Cantonese people. <laughs> it's just part of, it's part of the charm, right? Um, and, uh, and then I like the way you, you, you flowed from that moment in the bus and you can feel that in your head and then you drifting into your context of your family upbringing. And so you're bringing a lot of the, it's not just the intercultural aspect of this relationship in Hong Kong, but you're drawing from your past and going back and forth in your, your childhood memories, if you will. Um, is that how, you work your, I mean, going back to your craft, this, this memoir, it, it, I'm just fascinated by your process is, you know, on one hand, you're fixated in that moment in the bus, but what 
compels you to bring you to the other side? And then does that derail your train of thought or does that turn it into something that you embrace? Like, you know, going off of what you're trying to unpack at that moment, if you're trying mm -hmm. to if you understand what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I think uh, one of the first things that, I, I think a lot of people think that, that memoir is, well, confuse it with autobiography, first of all, and the difference between an autobiography and a memoir is that an autobiography is a whole life and a memoir is a piece of a life. It's, it's taking a segment of that life and turning it into story. And when people read a good memoir, they should forget that this is a very crafted piece of writing that is, is built for, um, for readers rather than just being uh, told as it happened. And also, an, you know, it's the difference between anecdote and memoir. And anecdote, I, I first started thinking about this book based on anecdotes I've told. I've told several you know, stories about my travels to my friends, which they found amusing. And I was just telling them as this is what happened and no reflection in it. But when you write memoir, you balance the actual scenes with reflection. And so that's where the craft comes in is to be able to, to lead a reader toward a deeper meaning in that. So if I just tell you what happened, I, as the writer, have no control over how you're seeing it and you have no idea how I am actually making meaning out of that. So in crafting memoir, I'm balancing the two of those, balancing the, um, the actual scenes with my reflections about it and some hopefully touching on larger, I hate to use the term universal, but universal kinds of themes that hopefully will resonate for, for readers because I, my experience is unique. That's what happened to me. But for you to be able to read it and see something else in that, I need to bring in reflection and some guidance about what, what can we see in this? It's like when I was teaching literature and I would assign a story, but then I come into the classroom and start asking questions and start looking at, at you know, how does this connect with the, the, the student's lived experience? Yeah, yeah. No, that's a lot to take in there. That's really great. Why don't we take a quick break and let people digest what you just said, because there's just so much um, you know, just then it makes you appreciate this, the craft of, of writing a memoir, you know, all the much more. So yes, if you are listening in, um, I'm talking to Heather Diamond here about her new memoir, Rabbit in the Moon, and we'll come back and talk more about it. Continuing this really interesting conversation, learning about the process of writing a memoir uh, with Heather, Heather Diamond, uh, and, and just not the, on one level, it's the craft of writing and digging deep into a person's life and reflecting on things you've done in your life, but there's so much to unpack in just uh, the, of course, the intercultural relationship you have with Fred, who is a Hong Kong boy and uh, grappling with your own upbringing and uh, your, I guess, you know, love affair when it start, all started here in Hawaii. I, Heather, before we get to, I don't know, your next uh, reading, I wanted to reinforce that that really interesting space that you occupy right now you know there's a term is in hong kong people call you gui paw right which is yes. um and it's not derogatory it's just a western lady western woman right? i thought it was white ghost 
Well, I was going to say the literal translation <laughs> is because when my, you know, you know, when I'm doing research for my documentary and, and for me growing up, when people talk, called people of color, like if you had to call like a black person, it's and it's derogatory. It's the, mm -hmm. it's just black. And then is ghost. And for you, you're termed as guaipo. It's the same guai. So it's like ghost woman, like ghost meaning, meaning foreign, really. Um, but somehow, linguistically, some races are deemed more derogatory when you use those terms, which is very interesting and troubling at the same time. You know what I'm saying? So when you say guailo, um, like a foreign um, man, and guaipo, it's not derogatory. But when you say hakwai, it's not acceptable or it was how we grew up saying it but it shouldn't be so i'm just trying to pick out like some um language issues that culturally are um you know how we see a culture and how we create language to describe people is something at play and i think for you being a western woman going into a very chinese culture you must have you know come across a lot of these issues I think I, I'm fascinated with all of that. I used to teach multi Hawaii's multiculturalism at UH. And so, um, and before that I taught multicultural literature in Texas. And when I came to Hawaii, I realized I had to relearn everything I thought about multiculturalism because it was so different in Hawaii. Yeah. And also um, I had a lot of students in Hawaii who, not a lot, but I had students in Hawaii who came from usually through the military from elsewhere who would say Hawaii is the most racist place I've ever lived. And the local students would look at them like, what? what are you talking about? But it was that experience that I had had too of not ever being white and not ever having lived in a place where I was racially marked and not ever having lived in a place where I felt marginalized and not, and for anyone coming into Hawaii, any white person coming into a way that's an opportunity or it's a very uncomfortable experience or both but if you can take your discomfort and you can make that an opportunity to learn about your limitations that's really interesting so the you know the the white ghost term in hong kong to me is very much like kali in hawaii and it depends on who's saying it how they're saying it you know it can be used in humor it can be used for self-deprecation it can be used as an adjective or a noun. You know, it's just like the terms for Chinese. It can mean Chinese or it can mean cheap. So, you know, if you say pake. Right. So right. it depends on who's saying it um, and in what context. So in my book, I actually play with that term white ghost because I felt like a ghost a lot of the time because I couldn't speak the language and I often got kind of pushed to the margins. But I was very fortunate to have lived in Hawaii all that time beforehand, which was a perfect place to begin an intercultural relationship because he was really comfortable there because it's so Asian. I was comfortable there because it was Asia, but not. And I had an opportunity to learn all this stuff, but then going to Hong Kong and being the only Guaylo or Guaypo or Hallie <laughs> or whatever in a lot of environments made me feel, I thought, oh, this is how people feel when they are in, you know, how, how my black students feel in an all white environment or how, how Fred felt when he was teaching at Cal Poly and he was put on every committee as the token Asian. You know, that was something I hadn't really thought about. I was raised with colorblindness. 
And I didn't understand that that was a form of racism for a long, long time until my students started teaching me that until you start recognizing the particularity of other people's experience, you're denying their lived experience. And so I think Hawaii taught me color awareness in a way that I had started learning in Texas and that I learned more in Hawaii. But in Hawaii, it was playful. And in Texas, it was serious. You know, So it's a very different kind of context specificity, I think, that, that comes up. And in Hong Kong, I mean, there's a beer called Guaylo beer. So you know, know. there are people that imagine Howley beer in Hawaii. Is it good? Have you tried it? Guaylo beer? It's okay. It's not bad. <laughs> the things you get away with in Asia, you know, it's just funny. But now that you've kind of opened up that whole uh, discussion on, on racism, I want to feel like I we need to pull it back and talk a little bit in context to what's going on now. And you being in Asia and away from all the anti-Asian um, violence that's happening in the States now, I'm just curious, and you're living in an Asian society, how does that make you feel? And what are some, um, uh, is there any discussion over there about it even? And, and you know, because in Hawaii, shockingly, I don't feel like people are addressing it in the same kind of activism and, and raising of voices as you would find on the mainland. And there's something about that. I'd like to hear. Yeah, that. that's interesting. I have white friends in the States that are writing to me and saying, you guys should stay over there. They're the ones that are most concerned about. And I have Asian friends in various places like uh, Seattle and, and other places that are, you know, posting a lot of really activist stuff. Um, and, and I posted something the other day about, uh, it was a, a Korean woman who was writing about all of this and saying, you know, this is, this is the pain that we've been dealing with all along. It's about time you noticed it. And I had reposted that and several Asian friends had posted, written back to me and thanked me for posting that. So, you know, it's very different kind of conversations. I don't hear people talking about it here, which may reflect more my you know, we're on a university campus and mm. isolated from the world. Um, but we talk about it, Fred and I talk about it because we plan to go back to the States at some point. And it's very, very disturbing. And yet we live in a place where race is dealt with in an entirely different way. And so once outside of the US, I look at the US and think, what a dysfunctional place. Mm -hmm. And, you know, how little people seem to know about the history and how little they seem to understand about each other's experience. Um, I think it's an, I grew up in an environment where I didn't even know an Asian or black person until I moved to Texas hmm. because I grew up in an all white suburban city. It's changed since then, but it's entirely possible to live your life and not have a friend from another culture. And so when my, Fortunately, my first Asian friend was a Vietnamese woman who took me to all her family gatherings and took me to Vietnam with her. Wow. And so I had an immersion experience that was wonderful. Yeah. Um, but not everybody gets to cross those lines. It's very easy to stay in your own little enclave and not get to know anybody that's different from you. But so I hope right? that, that what? It's not an excuse for people who have not had, you know. No, no, people don't, you know. Sometimes I saw my, my teaching as activism in a way, if I can make people sit in the same classroom together and read about each other and have discussions about those things. I saw wonderful connections made 
between groups who said, oh yeah, we do that too. Or, oh yeah, I've had that experience. And they just had never had an opportunity to meet each other. Because even in Houston, they didn't go to each other's neighborhoods. Mm. Yeah, They didn't realize that they, that they had so much in common. Yeah, and that's what um, is problematic for me is how even in media that reinforces it is how compartmentalized we are in addressing race. It's always just, it's an Asian problem, it's a black problem, and we don't see the interconnections and where it comes in context. And this brings us back to your memoir in you drawing reference to your background and your grandmother in, you know, in context to who you are and how you're embracing this intercultural relationship with Fred, the Chinese guy. So back to your book, um, you had mentioned earlier off, off air about how, um, to your surprise, there were more Chinese people who were interested in your book than foreigners. Tell us a little bit about that, because, you know, your, 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 this book, this memoir is about your experience, you know, um, dealing in co- with this, this other culture, right? And there's a lot there with family and culture and identity and all that. Um, why is no, it- I think first of all, because I went to the East West Center, I have a lot of Chinese friends that are married to white people. Okay. So particularly, there's a particular interest in families that have, um, you know, formed from those relationships. Um, both people that are in intercultural relationships and also their kids were interested in what their parents have gone through. So that's been um, kind of a wonderful surprise to find out that those are those people are saying, oh, yeah, this happened to me or this mm. made me laugh or this reminds me of, of, you know, my experience with this. So it seems to resonate for, for people in intercultural relationships and also just Chinese people who have friends that are uh, in other groups who find themselves often explaining their Chineseness to people like, why are you so loud or why? do you eat this way? Or why are you always talking about your next meal while you're eating the current one? Those kinds of things. And I don't think people will really truly understand it unless they really kind of have that in their lives. You know, you can say something. Right. Right. And and I thought one of the audiences, potential audiences would be expats, but it depends because I've, I've come to discover a lot of the expats really live in a bubble where they only know other expats and they don't really get outside of it. And they, even if they go to Changzhou, which is the island where Fred's from, where much of the book is set, they only see the waterfront restaurants. They don't really have any, maybe, I don't know if it's a lack of curiosity or if it's a lack of experience, but I, I like to think it's more ignorance that people don't even ask the questions about what do those other people do or how do they live because they never see them. They're, they're really locked in their own class bubble as well as racial bubble. So I think, you know, you know, Hong Kong, it's class is on display here all the time. And a lot of people only circulate in those upper echelons. And if they aren't on public transportation and they aren't going to the places where local people go that are not in you know, yeah. the top classes, Trust me, when I was there, I was shocked that, you know, I have a whole group of international friends because of the bubble in the international schools that my kids went to. And if I didn't take them to a local tatantang, you know, which is the equivalent to Mm -hmm. a diner that I think Fred loves to, you know, you know, where you get local milk tea, um, they would not have ever gone to a place like that on their own. One is the language issue, but that's still no excuse because you can always find a way to communicate. And, you know, what is it that keeps expats in this 
comfort zone in the safe space that um, doesn't not allow, but just even open up that desire to learn beyond the surface of, of this, you know, Chineseness that you're talking about, right? Yeah, I don't, I, I haven't figured that out, but I think that, that, that those striations are very definitely there. And, and I feel really fortunate that we, for instance, decided not to get a car when we got here. So we're on public transportation everywhere. So, you know, I get on the, the I take a minibus to the train and the train to the metro and then the metro to the metro to yeah. get into town. I have a lot of time to look at people and I, and I see, you know, the demographics change on the yeah. way. Yeah. Of course, everybody else is looking at their phone these right. days. Yeah, if you're interested, there's there's all kinds of things that you can figure out from from yeah. being in the crush of people here. And that's a great image, is you know, that of you um, transporting yourself from different modes of transportation and the connections from like this this subway station to walking out and then stopping at a convenience store, maybe to buy a little snack before you get on the mini bus or your you know, last minute shopping and the conveniences that you know come with the charm of living outside of the city. And just all those things that have become such colorful moments in your life that have become your life now. Um, you know, to end our, I mean, there's so many things I still want to ask you to share about your book, but maybe because of time, you'd like to share a little bit more, uh, one more reading that we can get a little okay. extra glimpse into your memoir. Rabbit I'm going to read just a little short piece from my prologue, which is, um, was on my first trip to Hong Kong and we went jade shopping for a jade bracelet, which I was obsessed with and everybody else thought was silly. So that's that. We are the only customers and Fred purchased on a blue stool next to mine. Over our head, Fred's mother and second aunt banter and laugh with Mr. Chung, who occasionally consults with his wife. My plan to look and leave appears less and less possible. I whisper to Fred, what about the price? How are we supposed to know how much they cost? There are no price tags on any of the bracelets. Don't worry about it, he answers. They'll agree on a price and we'll figure it out later. You mean pay her back? Uneasy, I imagine a replay of the discussion at lunch, only this time about how much we spent. He talks to his mother and then tells me she wants to buy it for you as a gift. Embarrassed by her generosity and annoyed that my romantic fantasy has been co-opted, I suck in my breath and decide to choose a skinny band in hopes it will be less expensive than the wider ones I prefer. I don't want to be labeled the extravagant girlfriend on top of the eccentric American. The conversation swirls above and around me, making me feel like a small child. I fidget as I wait for translation. Mrs. Chung lifts my left hand in hers and kneads it, gently pressing my fingers and thumb together while talking to Fred. I assume she's trying to determine my size. He says, she's saying your hands are soft like a little girl's. Some women's hands aren't so soft. I beam at her, flattered that my nearly 50 year old hands have garnered such a compliment. Mrs. Chung waves her hand over the tray and Fred says, she's asking you which one you like. Feeling pressured, I look again through the tray. I like this color and width, I say, pointing to the first one, but it's way too small. He translates and Mrs. Chung smiles and nods while placing the same bracelet over the tips of my fingers where it comes to my second set of knuckles. She removes it and leans down to rummage under the counter where I guess she must have additional stock. She emerges with a plastic squeeze bottle and beckons her husband to where I'm sitting. She hands him the bracelet and squirts a cool gel onto my hand. Fred is facing away, talking to his mother. I elbow him and hiss, translate. 
What's she doing? Dish soap, he says, reading the Chinese label. Mrs. Chung positions my elbow on the counter with my hand in the air, then presses my fingers into the shape of a budding tulip. Her husband leans over and with a single downward thrust that makes me yelp, rams the tiny bracelet from my fingertips to my wrist where it fits perfectly. And as it slowly dawns on me, permanently. Yes. And again, an excerpt from Rabbit in the Moon by Heather Diamond, who you're listening to right now. I That jade bracelet, that that cultural um, metaphor of, of being connected to the culture and the family and something that you don't ever take off. Do you still have it on you? No, actually, um, yeah. I had it for 10 years and then it, we were playing we and Fred fell on me and it broke in half. <laughs> it's in the book. You wrote it in the book. <laughs> right, right. But um, that's brilliant. Um, if I had to ask you to share one thing that you learned from the family, and I know there are many, um, what would it be that you'd like to share? I think the biggest thing I learned from my Chinese family and from this whole experience was to val that interdependence does not have to compromise my independence, mm. if that makes any sense. Yes, absolutely. I think what I learned from Chinese family was a deep sense of interdependence. Everybody's connected and duty and obligation are ways to express your love and they not, aren't things to avoid. Um, and it really made me look at American culture and our putting independence ahead of everything else. And what's that, what's that done to us? Yeah. And how disconnected Americans feel. I'm glad you said that because I, I struggle with that all the time here and how we have this sense of independence, but, um, and what's missing desperately is that collective family feel, you know, of working for each other and taking care of each other. And I hope that this country kind of finds a way to come together. Otherwise, we're not going to heal. It's just going to, you know, get uglier. Um, was there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners, you know, based on your experience and this process and your um, understandings of, of the different cultures and working with this family? Just yeah, what are your well, let me just connect it back to what you were just saying. I think I think the whole book is about me unlearning my white gaze, mm. even though I thought that I was really culturally savvy. And I I hope that if nothing else, that there's a small example in that of what I learned, which is that if you're going to become aware of the ways in which you stereotype people or close yourself off from people that are unlike yourself. You know, the, the things that it takes to get across those are simple. They're, they're things like a, a really good sense of humor. You have to be able to laugh at yourself. You have to be willing to be humbled. And you really have to learn to just shut up and listen and get over yourself because other cultures have things to teach us that may, you know, that will decenter our sense of American entitlement and our sense of American privilege. Uh, and I think that being, learning to be a beginner in somebody else's culture is a great way to start learning and relearning how to be part of the world. Yeah, that, that's huge. Thank you for that. That's such a beautiful way to end this. Um, says Heather Diamond with her new memoir, Rabbit in the Moon, that hopefully, are we going to be able to access that here? It will be published May 11th. And the pre-ordering should go up on Amazon Bookshop and elsewhere within this week. 
Excellent. Well, good luck when I look forward to more writings from you and good luck with your Chinese family over in Hong Kong and give Fred a big hug. Thank you.